this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. Okay, so what are the numbers on your company's dashboard? My guess is you look at your company's revenue and profitability, which are two great metrics to track, but there are another eight key drivers of the value of your company that go well beyond just revenue and profitability that are the things that acquirers want to know about. Going and getting your value builder score will help you look at your business through the lens of an acquirer. It takes about 15 minutes to do. Go to valuebuilder.com to get your score. Next up, Aurangzeb Khan. Where do I start with Aurangzeb? This dude is smart. Let's start that. <laughs> he is a really, really smart guy. He's got like five degrees, most of them from Stanford. He uh, created a number of companies. The one we talk about in this episode uh, is a company with a, called Altia, which had a product called Panacast and has a product called Panacast, I should say. Think of a conference room where if you're on a Zoom call, you could only see one person. Well, what he wanted to do was create basically a panoramic view with a special video camera, making a conference call with multiple people so much more enjoyable on a platform like Zoom. Started it out and sold it within seven years. Get this, $125 million sale. It was a 22-employee company at the time of the sale. I can't even say it without laughing. Here to tell you the rest of the story is Rengzeb Khan. Rengzeb Khan, welcome to Built Cell Radio. Great to be here, John. Thank you for including us. Yeah, no, you are a four-time entrepreneur. How did you get the, the idea for Altia? What was the genesis for this product? You know, back um, in uh, 2012, when we raised Series A, we built a plan in 2011. We were experimenting with um, immersive video experiences. You know, uh, video conferencing is one use case. AR and VR is another use case. And you can think of so many things now with AI, self-driving cars and so on, that need to bring in a lot of visual information. And, um, you know, pretty much everybody before us had, had done it, and even today are doing it primarily using a single camera with an ultra-wide angle lens or a fisheye lens. Yeah. Those devices have very well-known limitations in terms of the level of distortion. You know, you look like in a fishbowl, like, like distortion, scale distortion, objects look like being pulled and so on. Um, we felt that the right approach was to invent uh, a whole new class of technology for synchronizing, stitching, and optimizing a multi-camera array. Who's the we at this point? So it's not just you in your garage. There's a group of you that started this company? There is. We were uh, three folks uh, okay. that uh, had background uh, and, and also uh, a deep, deep, deep background in imaging science in uh, the semiconductors used for uh, digital imaging and uh, imaging signal pipeline. Uh, and then I had done earlier work in my first startup for uh, building the graphics chip for the Sony PlayStation 2. We built several steppings of that chip and also a chip for a video supercomputer used for movie making. So you are like a tech guru. Like you are deep. I always even look at your bio before we started. It was like you're, you have like five degrees. 
was, I was trying to figure out where all the places he went to school. And I'm like, oh, yeah, you know, I think it was Stanford and Berkeley. And there were a lot of letters after your name. Well, thank you. I just, you know, I'm a slow learner. so I have to do it many times. <laughs> Okay, so you built this, you, you had this idea that video cameras, if I can dumb it down, were, uh, were not providing a great uh, experience for all of the use cases. Um, right. And you had this idea that if you, if you were to provide a more panoramic view, that it would provide what you refer to as kind of immersive morning, meaning you feel like you're there more. That's right. Is that it? That's exactly it. And I think, you know, just to kind of, so right now we're having a one-on-one -on -one conversation and we need, you know, a, a single camera is just about the right field of view. But imagine you had one or two more folks on your side and I had one or two more folks on my side, right? Pretty much you start bobbing and weaving trying to get two people in or you get really uncomfortably close to each other. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You yeah. know, that's not a good experience. And, and we felt that, you know, our eyes give us about 180. Yeah. And when we talk to people or talk to a group, we instinctively engage with that group uh, by reading the room, reading the group, seeing, you know, who's engaged, who's lost, how to present and talk and so on. And I thought that was very weird that, that cameras really, you know, hundreds of years being around had just given us this tunnel view of the world. And are you like a tinkerer? Do you, do you get in and actually like to play with the technology, the lenses of the camera, the aperture, and so forth? Or are you the money guy who raises the money, sells the idea, and then hires the, 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 the guru? A little bit of both, right? So, I mean, growing up, I had my own dark room. I did a lot of work with cameras. I was not a good photographer, but I was certainly an amateur photographer, right? And then, of course, growing up in the Valley, which has been a phenomenal place to build a career and work in, did a lot of work with high performance video. And, and actually in, in our case, you know, the challenge for real time communications is even more difficult because it's real time. So if it takes much more than a few hundred milliseconds for me to get to you and back, it doesn't feel like a real time conversation. So the bar we had set was very high, which is to create a real time synchronization stitching technology so we can take any size array of cameras and create any size field of view. Love it. So who are the other two founders? What were their, what, what are their names and what? what Asif uh, Sarvari, he was a guy uh, who built imaging chips earlier, um, you know, and uh, Lars Hurlitz. Lars had built an encoder chip, um, had sold his previous company and uh, had built a, what's called an H.264 encoder chip. You know, when you have a lot of video data, you sometimes compress it to send it out. And then H.264 was the popular standard. I mean, you've been, you've been involved in a lot of startups and I wonder... Were you tempted to do this without your two co-founders? Meaning, were you ever tempted to say, enough of the co-founders, the other shareholders, the nonsense of getting everybody together, maybe I'll just do this one on my own? No, you know, I was going to say, you know, I, so personal belief, right? Engineering is one of those, you know, it's, it's a team sport and I'm very lucky. We built a phenomenal team and like any uh, great team, we didn't try to build. In fact, in the beginning, we deliberately tried to keep the team very small, but kind of handpick each person. And the nice thing when you build a company is, you know, you can give everybody a stake in the deal. And, and that just aligns everybody, right? We're all in the same boat. We're all rowing together. We either all win or nobody wins. So you had, they were shareholders in the company. Oh, everybody. Everybody, everybody. in our company is a stockholder. Uh, since the, as soon as they join, they have, you know, options that best over time. Uh, but basically, they, own, they, they have a stake in the deal. What, one of the questions I always wonder at Founders Philosophy too is, is, is how big a financial stake would a, a rank and file, not a founder, but a kind of a, 
air quotes, rank and filed employee get in terms of options? Like, is it the kind of thing where if the options were to, were to be successful and you were to have the exit you were hoping for that an employee might earn, for example, one year salary or two year salary? Like, is there any sort of benchmarks that you would help yeah. You know, yes. other entrepreneurs. Yeah. You know, that's great. So my kind of belief, you know, and you mentioned this earlier, is that, you know, I'm fine to have a small piece of a big pie mm, yeah. than the whole pie, right? Because, you know, and if you make it, so we definitely built the company with the idea of a venture scale business. We knew, and you were seeing evidence around us, you know, Zoom's had a phenomenal IPO. They were a Gartner Cool vendor in 2014. We won that in 2015. Hundreds of companies are using us together. So we, we were lucky or prescient to see this wave for huddle rooms coming up and how people work now, how modern video collaboration works. And we felt that there'd be plenty of um, wealth creation to happen. I just wanted to make sure we brought the right team with the right depth of knowledge and expertise and kind of the right attitude to, to work well together. And how do you avoid, and how do you avoid um, them always sort of asking, how's our valuation and, and, and yeah. when are you going to sell? And, yeah. You know, you know, in fact, we didn't have a plan to sell, so we'll get to that, I'm sure. But, you know, the, the valuation, of course, we were also, and again, it's, uh, it's kind of your, your DNA as a company, right? So our DNA has been to be very open and very transparent. So once somebody is in, they really are in. They know all the good, the bad, and the ugly. And I find that that's actually very powerful when you work with highly motivated, self-directed people who want to win. If you give them good information and you you know, you, you lead by example, you work at least as hard as everybody else around you. It just builds a, a healthy culture, right? So our culture was to let our product and let our software do the talking, not, you know, um, market ourselves so much as just let the product get out there and, and show what it could do. Got it. So it, it certainly did get out there and, and won a lot of support early by raising uh, an initial venture capital round. Maybe talk a little bit about what that was like to raise your first kind of tranche of money. And in particular, I'd be curious, you know, I think a lot of listeners would be, uh, you know, answering that same, is it better to open up, you know, get a big piece of a, uh, sorry, 100% of a small pie or a small piece of a big pie. You know, maybe, maybe we could talk a little bit about your philosophy on, on, on when it makes sense to raise money and, yeah. and maybe some thoughts around how you go about raising money. Yeah, you know, uh, two things, and I've, I've kind of tried to be consistent on this. You, you know, one is to be uh, very frugal in terms of cash burn. I'll, I'll talk about that hopefully a little la- later here. But to answer your question, you know, I was fortunate to have been an entrepreneur earlier and, and knew some of the folks in the Valley who had done well. Some had done phenomenally well. Um, so they were, um, they were, uh, they wanted to invest, they invest in series A or seed stage. We didn't do a seed stage. We just did a series A with it. We raised 3.5 million from uh, a handful of folks who, you know, um, ha- had just done well and, and, uh, were aware of and fine with taking, you know, risky investments like, like a new venture. And this is basically on your reputation at this Pretty point. Much. You're, you're yeah. not a big business plan per se. No, actually, we, I mean, we, we had a business plan. We had a, a value drop and a vision. We said that with the cl- growth of the cloud and the scalability through, you know, companies like Amazon and so on, services like the one we we're using, Zoom would, would flourish and emerge and, and that millennials naturally were doing text and video and not phone calls. And so we saw that as that workforce came forward, distance would kind of get annihilated by great bandwidth and these kinds of technologies, right? I mean, you are in Canada, I'm here in the Valley and 
I literally pitched to all over the world sitting right here. And it's just, it's a very normal thing now. You know, 10, 12 years ago, it was not that common. It, you could see it could happen. It wasn't that mm-hmm. common. So we raised it based on a very solid business plan. Um, you know, it had risk and we were very open about the risk. Uh, we also had technical risk and we showed how the, the team members we brought in, the first 10 people, could nail those risks. And right? you had no product at this point. You didn't have a physical camera to point we, to. We had prototypes. So again, oh. having been done it once before, I took uh, about a year actually with the, uh, off and spent time kind of, you know, prototyping some stuff ourselves. Very crude, uh, but enough to kind of show that it worked. Navid Alam was another early guy, Yash Gupta. So we, we had this technology, we could showcase it. It was crude, but it kind of showed that it could be done. That the, you know, the, the really hard problem we, we, we needed to solve was how do you synchronize and stitch and optimize video from cameras in real time? And we've built now, I think, the world's fastest stitching pipeline. Uh, it's a five millisecond stitch. And to calibrate you, a blink of an eye is about 150 milliseconds. Wow. It's pretty fast. And it's so fast that it can actually be used for, you know, all kinds of applications like self-driving cars, you know, and so on. So it's, it's been a great platform technology. So you raise this money and I'm always curious, how do you put a valuation on the business where it's just a prototype and a couple of guys yeah. working on, a, on yeah, an idea? It, it's a negotiation, right? And I, you know, um, and so there are some benchmark metrics in the Valley. And of course, you know, we're lucky that there I, I knew other founders and, you know, and so you had some ranges, but we ended up, I think we had um, a 10 million valuation and uh, we raised about three and a half uh, at, at that first stage. Got it. Got it. So, you, and then so we did two more rounds after that, uh, but still, you know, a very frugal uh, deal. Uh, we, we raised uh, about 10 and a half at series B. And at that point, very happy and very you know, fortunate that Intel Capital came in. They are a phenomenally successful investor, very tech savvy, and getting them to invest is actually a high bar, but if you kind of surpass that bar, it also expands your horizon as an enterprise-grade company, and that actually helped us also in, in, in customer outreach. And then did a, another uh, about a 10 million round after that. Got uh, it. So Intel being the, the Intel Capital being the division of the little, the, the chip maker that right. invests in technology companies. Okay, and they kind of gave you the good housekeeping seal of approval that hey, if Intel Capital's in, then it's, this, this it's, must yeah, be. That's legit. how it was viewed, I think, in the market, right? And then the, of course they also were connected to like the Fortune 2000 worldwide, and so they could help us um, just get introductions and get connected once we had a product, right? So we, we brought out a first product, we won lots of awards with it, put ourselves on the map, you know, got about 400 companies starting to buy the product. And then the second gen product, Panacast 2, we ended up with 1600 companies, you know, from Fortune 5 through startups, all using the product because it was unique and it solved a hard problem at the right moment in time. And what's the distribution strategy? I mean, I, I was doing a bit of research before the interview, and as I shared with you before we started, I Googled it, and I found it on Amazon, the, the, the Jabra Panacast 3, and yeah. I sent it to our IT person saying, hey, we should get these for our office. Thank you for doing that, yeah. <laughs> uh, but is that how people buy them on Amazon, or are they buying no, them? So what happened is in the beginning, we were selling you know, directly, and then over the last four years, we started to build out a network of distributors and resellers. And okay. a lot of them actually came to us because end customers, you know, major corporations were saying, I want to buy this product. And so they heard about us, I think in the best way, which is from end customer demand. And we were always out on the road, evangelizing, demoing, pitching, you know, showcasing, um, and just trying to build that flywheel of demand outside in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then in the last year, we went essentially all 
uh, through the channel. Through so the what, would it, what would it, who would, it, who would be a typical channel partner of yours? Uh, you know, so Stampede and Starin are the two in the US. I don't know uh, there's uh, AVT in Australia, NEC okay. in Japan. So there's a, just, a, a, just a range of them uh, that are specialist distributors in AV technology. And then of course, back in 2017, we started pioneering using the same array as a set of AI sensors to create data. And that opened up an ecosystem. We opened up an API so other people could write software on our processor. And it opened up an ecosystem of companies now using it to not only have a great audio video experience, but also use for it to generate information. Okay. So I want to see how the cash moves. So, so I'm going to pick a company out of the air. Procter & Gamble calls you up and says, yeah. Raise that. this is great technology. We want it for all of our boardrooms. Yeah. They would not buy it directly from you. They no. would through an AV distributor, someone who, who they- yeah, actually, through, through, Typically, they would buy it through a reseller. Okay. The reseller, uh, who, who's like a specialist AV reseller, and then the reseller would procure it from the distributor. Okay. So would and, sell to the distributor, and then they would feed the supply chain. And when do you get paid? How would, how would you guys get the money from that sale from Procter & Gamble? We, we just typically actually got paid uh, um, the discounted amount at which we sold it to the distributor. I see. Okay. The distributor made some margin and then the reseller made some margin. And so the final transaction happened between the, let's say, P&G in this example and the, the reseller. But uh, distributors are notorious for, for stringing out OEM manufacturers and, and paying slowly. How did, you man how did you deal with that cash flow kind of gap? Yes, it, that's exactly. And so and in fact, for a startup, you know, that's a pretty serious consideration. So part of the criteria we use was timely payments and, and sort of you know, reference checks and some conversations with their uh, exec management to say, look, we are a startup and we live on a very thin um, cash balance sheet. Uh, and so the ca cash burn and cash flow is important to us. And we were fortunate that you know, the product moved quickly. So, so I think also distributors, if they find that a product moves quickly, then they have confidence that their capital won't get tied up for a long time. Got it, got it. And so when you took that original Series A, what did you say? It was three and a half million dollars at a ten million dollar valuation. You know, a lot of people say the moment you take out, uh, you know, outside capital, you are in essence building to sell. You, you you have to get a shareholder return for the people that have invested you. So you you can't you lose the luxury of building a lifestyle business or building a forever you know a legacy business. You you are going down the train is going down the track. Do you, do you share that view? That you know, I would say certainly when, when people invest in you, then, you know, I very strongly felt the obligation that, look, they've invested, then they deserve a great return. That, and, we, and, and so does the team, right? I mean, people are working. You know, we all took pay cuts. We were working for relatively low salaries, uh, but, but with a big equity stake, right? And so the, so the only win is if the equity goes to a liquidity event and, and, it, and it turns out to be, you know, in many cases, a life-changing event, right? How big a pay cut did you take on a percentage basis? Would you like relative to your market rate, you know, air quotes? Mine was big. I mean, so it's sort of like I took the biggest and then others took less, but mine was 50%. 50%. So you figured if you were the CEO of another company, you're, you're basically earning half of that as yeah. CEO of OTF. Half at the base level and then actually even less because typically those deals, the total comp had, you know, MBO components and other things, RSU, so I didn't have any of that. But Got I had a I had a big stake in the in my company, and so if it succeeded, it would be a great outcome, and, and it and it has been. Um, what advice would you give other entrepreneurs who are 
who are, are dealing with investors for the first time. I know you've done it through many startups, so this is old hat for you, but, but they've raised their first tranche of outside money. Maybe it's a million or two, and they're just dealing for the first time with outside investors. What, would, what advice would you One thing, and I just say it's really crucial, is when you raise the money, make sure you have raised enough money to achieve a meaningful milestone. Because, you know, the, the whole valuation cycle then says, okay, if you achieve, if you build the first product, you get the first sort of customers, you get the first million in revenue. There are a handful of metrics that you, you know, maybe you negotiate them up front, or, but you generally need to know. And sometimes people don't raise enough money or they have unprecedented things happen that they hadn't thought about that, you know, they, they kind of just burn through the money or get very close to the edge. And then it, it's a very difficult negotiation, right? Because you're, you're on the back foot, you're in a much weaker position. So we tried to raise a meaningful amount of money that we could get to that milestone. And as you said earlier, we, we had a track record that allowed us to have a more equitable value discussion, right? To not give up. I've, I've heard of this thing called a down round where essentially yeah. you're going and you're raising money in what is essentially a lower valuation. A lower, a lower valuation, right? Or sometimes right. people give up more than half the company at series A. Mm -hmm. So we actually were kind of on the best case outcome of that. You know, and, and the reason being is, we had again had shown a track record of building companies and achieving outstanding value. And of course the, the, the market opportunity to your question, we were building a venture scale company. So those are the companies I like to build, not meant to be a family lifestyle type company, but meant to be a company that can really accelerate out. And that's where uh, Intel Capital and folks of that standing or any of the Sandhill VCs here, those are the kind of companies they would like to invest in, right? So indeed, if you want to build up a company said that is a family lifestyle company or a legacy company, that's a fantastic kind of company to build, but then the funding cycle is different and the way you grow it is different. And so if the aspiration is to, is to attract money from a Sandhill uh, venture capital firm or, or, or the likes of Intel Capital, um, what is the bar for someone like that to invest? What are they looking for? What, you know, yeah. it sounds like it's a much higher bar than the Series A sort of friends it and family. Is, it is. I think, you know, the, the, the expectations range depending on if they come at Series A, B, or C. And, but uh, I, I think, you, you know, on, on the asymptote on the low-end side is they want to make sure they get their money back, that it's not a total write-off. On the high side, you know, it can be a 10x multiplier, right? So, so anywhere between that 1 and 10, and, and, and typically, you know, 2 to 7, is a more typical range, but anywhere between one to 10, some are even more than 10 times returned, right? So those, but the, 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 the general expectation is that it's a multiple of the amount invested, many multiples preferably. Um, and then the horizon typically is, you know, uh, seven years is actually a fairly average number. That's, that's kind of our span. Uh, five, it could be five. Some companies now actually are more like 10. So, you know, seven is a pretty typical kind of a number. And in your case, you started this back in 14? 12, 2012. We released the first round in 2012. And so 2019, March, 2018, we have the deal. So roughly, you know, six and a half, seven years. Great. So let's get, let's get into, the, into the deal itself. You, at one point, you raised a Series C, I think you called yes. it, which was seven, at a $78 million valuation. That's right. The Series C was valued at 78. And then uh, G and Jabra came in and uh, did a, you know, a, just a, a preemptive offer at 125 million. Got it. So how many employees did you guys have at that stage when you got the $125 million offer? Uh, you know, we were 22 employees. Um, so that's, that's going to be mind blowing for a lot of people to hear, 
right? right. So like for some people to think that you, you sold a 22 employee company for $125 million is, is kind of mind blowing. Really? Yeah. You know, it's not that crazy for my <laughs> but I guess I, I, I'll accept that. It's pretty mind blowing. <laughs> um, what is that per employee? I mean, in terms of valuation, it's a lot. It's about $6 million right. of value per employee. A little more. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, but just to say, you know, to calibrate you, um, you know, the, the folks who were... Is that a nice way of saying get your head out of your ass? Is that <laughs> <what> you're... <laughs> no, it's... Uh... Calibrate me. <laughs> you know, highly, highly, highly accomplished individuals on the team and then products in the market that were generating, you know, uh, well, we grew revenue 4X over a three-year period and, uh, you know, 1,600 customers around the world, 40 countries, um, and the top brands, I mean, Zoomtopia, we had a, a, a story out with Uber, Zoom and us, how we enabled uh, Uber to, you know, use Panacast and Zoom for global. I mean, they're, you know, they operate in hundreds of cities around the world with our product, right? Uh, and and 30, 30 filed patents, 15 issued patents. How uh, important were, were, was the protection of the IP, the patents and so forth in, in yeah. the overall valuation? I think the, the fact that we, we had solved a hard problem uh, and that, you know, and many companies are trying to solve this problem and, you know, there's so many smart people, they will, but we were just ahead and we'd done it first uh, and that we had the patents to then protect our, our core IP, right? And also a way to scale it forward. You know, not, we're on our third commercial generation of products in, in, you know, about six years. So moving very fast innovating, you know, leading the industry in our space, uh, even compared to the very big players. And uh, of course, yes, the IP was very important. And the fact that, you, you know, I think, uh, Renee, the, the leadership at uh, GN, at Jabra, really could see how combined, because they had built a phenomenal expertise in, um, in, in audio and in audio AI, and we were doing video and video AI. And it was like these two trains running on parallel tracks, and you could easily see how combining them that's the other thing, by the way, the complementarity of fit was very powerful, right? Sometimes, as you know, companies come together to save like 10% cost. This isn't one of those. This is like really a chance to be, you know, one plus one could be 10 because you're, you're just reaching that much deeper and higher into the, into the opportunity. Yeah, that's what I want to get into next. So what was it? So the, the, the offer was from... Uh, GN Audio, as I understand it, which is a division yes. of a larger company called GN. Um, maybe describe what GN does and, yes, and sure. why they saw you as strategic. Yes. So GN itself actually is a storied uh, company. It's 150 years, celebrated the 150th anniversary this year. Hmm. Uh, very, very successful early Danish company. And the founder of that company, you know, laid uh, telegraph uh, uh, cables through Russia and China and all through, through, you know, through Hong Kong. So phenomenally far-reaching impact and pioneering uh, founder and team. And so they've always been, kind of, you know, company of that longevity, of, of course, reinvents itself and, and looks at new opportunities. Um, they had built a phenomenal business in audio products, uh, particularly from our interest, enterprise-grade products. And actually, they've been also winning a lot of market share for a consumer, you know, so both companies have won CES Innovation Awards, for example. They had a, a really nice product once this year. CES being the Consumer Electronics Show. Would I have heard of anything? Like, do they have any like headsets yes. that they've yes, heard yes. of? Exactly. Okay. 
very well-known headsets, um, headsets, uh, noise, noise canceling headsets for communications. Oh, cool. The okay. Market opportunity that recognizes that when we all now work in open offices, it's hard for people to sometimes concentrate because of the general level of sound around you. So, so with a headset and with noise canceling, you know, you're like in your own private space as a knowledge worker, you can concentrate, right? Well, we saw the other side of that, which is that in those same open offices, people are building hundreds of tiny conference rooms, you know, three, four, five person conference rooms. And the architecture of these rooms is really different than old style video conferencing. They are for practical everyday work and they are in use constantly. You know, if you go to an Uber or to an Indeed, they literally are constantly in use and that's just how people work, right? Like how you and I are talking, this is a normal way for people to work now. And so we concentrated on this opportunity and they realized that you know, these are very much a complementary set of capabilities uh, and a market expansion opportunity. And so did we, you know, we had a strong engineering team. I mean, 90% of the company uh, is engineering, but a relatively very weak sales and marketing, you know, two, two folks in sales, one, one in marketing. So <laughs> we needed help on that side. I love it. But GN had a, a big stable of sales yeah. and marketing folks. Yes. And did, did they sell through the same channel that you did, meaning Our the audio speaker. visual? Yeah. So, so in addition to having deep engineering expertise in audio, then they had this complementarity in terms of sales and marketing capacity. Same channel, exactly right. You know, some, some augmentation with the specialist channels for AV, but largely the same. And uh, a lot of... Uh, depth in manufacturing, right? And so when we wanted to scale business, and the nice thing with the manufacturing depth is it also, you know, just when you buy more volume, you get a better deal. So you, it could help with, with reducing cost in the product. So there were some cost savings as well. So you guys are, are, are 20 employees, some great, you know, customers and, and Indeed and, and Uber and so forth. Were you on the road, may, I may have missed this earlier, but were you on the sort of road to an IPO when GN made their preemptive offer? So we, we were actually searching for a partner to, com, to build. There's this new class of product coming out where, where basically, uh, you know, customers wanted products that are combining the video capability with, with audio. So imagine okay. our device has microphones and input, then you want speakers and you have a whole solution, right? And so, and then of course, we had a particular view about how AI would improve that experience. Like, you know, when I'm talking to you right now, I'm on a panicast, you're not seeing the 180, you're seeing a, a reduced view because I have a capability in this device that detects me as a person, doesn't know me by identity, but knows that there's a person and just frames the shot, reduces the field of view automatically. So these kinds of things were, you know, a, a, a big improvement to the user experience. And they were similarly making improvements. They had invested in a company uh, in Germany using AI to automatically adapt the audio experience. Mm -hmm. We both felt like we had an alignment on the vision. We had an alignment on the market opportunity. Got it. And, and so you were looking for a partner to help with the manufacturing. And, and uh, design, product and, design. And how did the, the acquisition come up? I mean, did they pull you aside and say, hey, how, how would you feel about if we bought you? Or did they... Pretty, like, did, pretty early. That's it. I mean, and we had... Maybe been fortunate we had other companies approach us earlier, and you know we were actually not going down that road. Um, but what happens, and and it was definitely the case here, is you know um, when I met the team and I met the key folks, I flew out to to Copenhagen. I was going to Europe for some customer meetings, so I you know, just took a day, flew up, and I felt very good about the cultural fit and about the complementarity and about the alignment of the vision, right? So because then you have to say, look, I'm going to be here and I'm going to be trying to. You know, I've got, I've got 
commitments to my investors, but also to my team and to myself? And is it an environment where we can all flourish and, and see that big uh, multiplier? And, and so we did. And, but to answer your question, yeah, they broached it very early on. Soon as I think they figured out, okay, the technology is sound and market leading and that we can build leadership products and they broached it very early. And then how did, where did it go from there? Did yeah. you, did they say, well, what do you want for the company? And no, <laughs> no. So I brought it back to my board, right? I mean, as you brought said, what so, back just their you, you said like just their interest. Did they the actually interest. do a letter of intent or what was the, the, the interest? And like, did we want to open the door? Okay. Because I was going to go, you know, I had raised about 27 million. And so for me, the next thing was to go do a big round, like a 30 million round. Mm-hmm. And then, as you said, put us on the road towards an IPO. And that you know, probably would have taken another three years, maybe more, right? And so, because I had investors and investors had a big stake and they'd been with us for, you know, six years, the normal governance process kicks in. And so I brought it to the board and I said, look, this is the, and so then the board set some parameters around the conversation. What does uh, that mean? Got, I'm sorry. What do you mean by they put, they set some You know, parameters. just some ideas. Okay, well, what is the minimum valuation that would be acceptable, for example, uh, we talked about getting an investment banker in and we actually did bring an investment banker in um, to, to facilitate the conversation because the, the, the GN folks had an investment banker. And then there was some other interest out there potentially. And so then, you know, investment banker does, did what they do, which is that they, they tried to scope the market out and see if this was the right deal and the best deal. And the- so they, uh, they got sort of... Uh, they check temperature with other companies other than GN. And yes. I'm assuming that the GN offer continued to be the best. They did. They, they were very purposeful uh, and decisive in their action. And, uh, you know, also the strategy, and then I'm, I'm sure, you know, there's like this whole strategy to negotiation, right? So, you know, they moved quickly, which then preempts in a sense, opening the door too wide to too many people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was a smart strategic move, I, I would say on the GN part. And, uh, you know, and the reason we opened the door and we moved forward was that uh, uh, the, the DNA and the fit felt right. Mm-hmm. And that's, uh, you know, knock on wood, that's continued to be true. We just had a big launch in uh, Monaco last week at an Infocom for the Jabra Panacast, which is built from Panacast 3, from our third gen product, but with, a, you know, a new very high volume manufacturing pipeline behind it. That's great. So the, the offer, I'm curious to know, so the board said... Uh, look, Arangzeb, this is the bottom line. Like if you're going to enter into these conversations, this is the minimum number. We've just put in money. We've got to see an appreciation for that money that you just, you had a valuation of 78 million. So clearly they're looking for an increase in the investment they've they've, they've made. So they give you a number. Um, At at, at any point, do you share that number with GN and say, look guys, it's not going to, it's got to be this or more. No, we, we, we didn't need to. Um, I mean, conceivably, you could do that. But I mean, I think they, you know, again, being, being, being quite sophisticated. I mean, they've had acquisitions in the past and, and a very sophisticated M&A team on their side. I'm sure they, in fact, I found out obviously now, you know, they built a very sophisticated model about the company, what they thought the financials looked like. They asked us for our financials. They actually went through an incredibly deep and exhaustive diligence process. Mm. Everything, you know, from being you know, outside experts, looking at the technology, looking on the financials. And so had a pretty good sense. But before they did all that, they made a preemptive bid. And I think, you know, they had done enough homework that the bid was, was a strong bid, right? 
it, it met the board's expectation. It wasn't going to be, uh, you know, some companies try to, to do this at the lowest kind of price and then they kind of grind on. And, and typically, it's, I would say, it's generally not a good outcome, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas I think the GN folks could clearly see that, hey, if, if this asset comes in, there is a market that is at least 10 times bigger behind it that we can together access. And, you know, the, the whole video collaboration market is exploding, uh, particularly this, this modern style of huddle room collaboration, right? You know, you've seen, I mean, Zoom's had a phenomenal IPO. I think they're at 27 billion today. So yeah. there's, there's a lot of opportunity in this space. Of course, they have an advantage being a SaaS provider. We're more of a device provider, but you need devices in all the rooms where the service is being delivered. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, was there any part of you that, that feared handing over the financials? Because we talked before we hit record and I said, can we talk about how much revenue you, you guys had? And, and you said, no, we, that's, that's, that was never made public, so we can't. So, but I'm reading between the lines and saying 22 employees, it can't have been that much. Maybe it was. I, again, I don't need you to comment on that. But I guess what I'm going at is, and, and the reason I'm asking this is I'm imagining other founders when asked for their financials may get a bit squeamish and think, oh man, is this going to shoot myself in the foot if they see that I only have X amount of revenue or Y amount of profit? Yeah. Um, did, were you squeamish at all about or a little hesitant? Well, you know, so I mean, so I maybe say it this way. Um, you know, we, we showed, uh, we, we actually had very good revenue for, for 22 people, you know, because, because the product sells, the product scales without people, right? Because I have right. a third. So, so I can, I can, I can get into, into, in, 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 into, into large, many multiple millions relatively quickly. I the see. other thing that I, that I could show was a very nice trajectory to the revenue growth. Mm. Okay. Right. And so, and then the third, the third part that the certainly I focused on as a CEO was, was repeat business, recurring customers. Because that, you know, that's a level of validation about the product and its need and that, that you're solving an important problem. Mm-hmm. They'll come back. We were a premium price product. We were not, you know, the low, I mean, you can buy hundred dollar cameras. We were uh, 9.95 for Panacast. Yeah, I think it's yeah, over a thousand dollars. Yeah. Canada. So it was not, it was not yeah. but it, it was delivering value. And, and the easy way we could explain the value was in a huddle room, any device other than us, any conventional camera would leave two out of the five people invisible. You, you, could, you know, if you had five seats in the room, you couldn't use two. That's 40% real estate wasted. And like in San Francisco, you know, $72 a square foot times 40 square feet wasted. You can do the math. It, it pays for itself very, very quickly. And people got that once you explained that. And then of course the whole AI roadmap. So we weren't hesitant about the revenue and it, it you know, it, it didn't, we didn't get, um, some companies get valued at one X multiple of revenues. Sometimes they think it's a great outcome at three X multiple of revenues. You know, we were in excess of those numbers um, because of the market opportunity and because of the IP protection around the product. Yep. Yep. And that makes sense. I love the fact that you were zeroing in on repeat customers. Yeah. Uh, is that a data point that GN asked you for and you started to track it? Were you tracking it all along? No, we were doing it all along. But interestingly, and this is like where you then start to find a resonance, right? Like how do the folks think? They picked up on that and, and they recognize the power of that because they themselves are in that same mode that, you know, customers stay loyal to the product and to the product portfolio for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. So a company like, like Uber would buy a half dozen and they're like, wow, these are amazing. And they'd buy another 50, another hundred. And that's right. That's, that's, that's what was happening is that, that, that the, you know, there's a bit of a network effect because we found that 
or, and in fact, they found also similarly, many customers found that they, once the customer uh, participant on the remote side received the feed, um, they were like, what is that? How are you doing that? How can you bring everybody in and they don't look like they're in a fishbowl, they look kind of normal, right? Uh, and so that helped us um, scale even faster. How do you, I mean, it sounds like an amazing uh, run, an amazing seven-year journey. At what point, how do you personally feel in, at this stage in your career, having, having sort of wrapped up and put a bow on this business is, you know, are you, you sound like a startup guy. Is there another business plan in your back pocket? Are you on to the next? Yeah. You know, I I definitely like doing startups. I, I, I mentor in the technology ventures program at Stanford and I'm also a charter member for an organization of Pakistani entrepreneurs. I was Mm -hmm. born and raised in Pakistan and also tie the Indus entrepreneurs, which is Indian and Pakistani entrepreneurs who started that. So we spend a lot of time now, you know, when, when I did my first startup, it was not that common and we kind of just l- learned by doing, but now there's a network of people who help just uh, voluntarily and freely also as angel investors. So I'm definitely very active in that community mm-hmm. because I find, as you probably know, also entrepreneurship creates new jobs and new opportunity and uplifts a whole country and a whole region and a whole economy in a very powerful way. Right. So, and I was very, very fortunate to be in Silicon Valley, where I love working here with people from all over the world. How, how did you get to Silicon Valley? What was your upbringing and, and what landed you in the valley? Yeah, I, you know, a bit of, a, as you said, technical geek. I had a, a first class first in, in Pakistan from one of the good schools in uh, physics and mathematics. And Berkeley had this incredible pedigree in physics. So I came to study physics and actually ended up doing electrical engineering, computer sciences, and, and nuclear engineering. Uh, and, and semiconductors were just exploding around that time, right? So my core technical expertise was as a circuit designer and in building system-on-chip, large-scale semiconductor devices. So I stayed with that for a very long time. I was a tandem building the massively parallel computer systems that are used to run non-stop systems, Six Sigma available systems, running most of the world's banks and stock exchanges and so on. So really, uh, and then pioneered system-on-chip devices for, uh, you know, for hard disks, for um, gaming consoles, things, networking equipment, um, like what Cisco produces. And um, just really have always maintained a deep technical knowledge. Uh, but then along the way, when I was at Stanford, you know, first degree was double E, and then the second was a business degree, mm. uh, rather than a PhD. Because I actually felt like I needed to, to learn more about how businesses are put together. And, you know, how do you build? And I attended a class at Stanford in the business school that I really enjoyed, which was just called entrepreneurship. And um, uh, Professor Johnson, Pitt Johnson, he was one of the very early VCs. He started asset management. You know, he'd give us these gigantic business plans and kind of just say, okay, analyze this and decide if you'd fund it. And then actually would bring in the founder and the CEO. And, and those companies in those days were like the star companies that had gone from being founded to being, you know, multi-billion dollar revenue making companies. And so it it just was an incredible eye opener to say, you know, these are real people who took risks and they don't all work out, but in these cases, you know, they did. And it was just a very, very inspiring experience. Hmm. Hmm. What's been your biggest failure as an entrepreneur? Uh, You know, a couple of times, uh, 
losing some of the key guys that I wanted to bring on board, not being able to get the right guys in at the time, and it delayed us in getting products out. Mm. I think looking back, you know, and then certainly in the very beginning of, of our company, we took on uh, more than building the device. We were building a full cloud service. We prototyped it, we built it, uh, but realized after having done all that, that although technically that we could do it, it was phenomenally uh, exciting to do, we didn't have the funding to go kind of take that all on. So one of the cardinal rules in a startup, right, is, you know, be laser focused on one thing and nail that, make sure it's worthwhile. So we kind of deviated from that. Mm. And, uh, you know, it cost us, it cost us time and money. And uh, we built that technology and it's still on the shelf. We haven't been able to commercialize it, you know, maybe down the road. One thing with good technology is, you know, if it doesn't go out right away, you just never know when there might be another moment in time when it can, when it can flourish. But, you know, biting off too much, I would say, and then uh, some of the, the, the team composition things in the beginning. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it doesn't sound like you did much wrong because uh, a $125 million exit in seven years is a pretty, <laughs> it's a pretty good oh, way to spend you. Spent a few uh, a few years of your life, uh, Rangzeb. I know we're going to have lots of requests to, for people to reach out to you. Is there? Can we point people first of all? Where do they buy the Panacast Three, the Jabber Panacast Three? What's the? Where do you want to point people to? Is there a website? Yeah, they can go to panacast.com okay. or uh, jabra.com, and uh, you know, one way or the other, just get get back to us, and we would love to. Uh, enable them and, uh, you know, see the product flourish. We're very passionate about transforming how people connect and we think this will help. Yeah, that's, that's fantastic. And also, then, by the way, uh, sorry, in our distributors like Stampede and Sterin, and there will be more being announced. So, so if you go to Stampede or Sterin uh, and their reseller subsystem, B&H carries it. Uh, there's um, AVI, SPL, Ford AV. There's a bunch of them out there okay. in, in the U.S. and Canada. And then if you're international, of course, there are local. Uh, so if you... Google it, you'll typically find the local reseller. The reseller, great. And this, the, the power of Google will get you to this product yep. if, if interested. Um, and I know we're going to have requests. Is there, on social media, do, do you accept LinkedIn connections? Do you have a Twitter feed? Are you on Instagram? What's the best way to reach you on, on social? Yeah, uh, yeah I do. I, I mean, it's sometimes bad because I'm traveling so much. So forgive me if I take too long to respond. But LinkedIn is awesome. Okay. And then, you know, we'll, we'll circle back. And we'll, we'll put this in the show notes. And if you're watching on video, you can see Aurangzeb's, uh, the unique spelling of his name. It's A-U-R-A-N-G-Z-E-B. Am I getting that correct? Or like, Perfect. That's awesome. Thank you for getting the name right. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, it, um, it's been a real pleasure. And thank you for your candor. And uh, it's a great product. And I wish you all the best with it. It's great. Thank to you so much, John. Pleasure talking with you today. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. 